By his early 30s, Martin Shkreli had held a variety of impressive roles. He was the co-founder of multiple successful hedge funds, CEO of biotechnology firm Retrofin, and founder and CEO of Turing Pharmaceuticals. So how did young Martin Shkreli, with no formal training in chemistry and a bachelor's degree in business administration, become a pharmaceutical CEO and have an estimated worth by Fortune magazine in 2016 of $45 million? And how did Martin Shkreli, only a few years later, become a convicted felon worth practically nothing, referred to by the media as pharma bro and the most hated man in America? And... Whatever happened to that unreleased Wu-Tang Clan album Martin Shkreli bought for $2 million? Find out today on the Controversial Figures podcast. Welcome to Controversial Figures, a podcast about intriguing figures in the media. My name is Tammy Hawkins. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to the show. Visit Controversial Figures on Patreon and donate anything that you can. I will give you a shout out on a future show and send along occasional swag to regular donators. If you donate at higher tier levels, you'll obtain access to additional content on a regular basis. And with that, let's discuss our controversial figure for today. Born in 1983 and raised in New York, Martin Shkreli attended Hunter College High School in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. At age 17, Martin would drop out of attending high school before his senior year while receiving the credits necessary to complete his diploma through an internship program. This internship program placed Martin at Wall Street hedge fund Kramer, Berkowitz, and Company, the Kramer in the company name belonging to CNBC financial pundit and resident TV mad money screamer Jim Kramer, who ran the company at that time. Martin started in the mailroom, but displayed a unique talent early on for smoking out small biotech company scams. Only about 15% of drugs that begin clinical trials are ever approved by the FDA. And while the lengthy FDA approval process occurs, drugs are hyped beyond what they may be capable of doing. It is extremely rare for any company or any person to be prosecuted for inflated drug claims meant to lure investors. Also during this time, Martin, working his networking skills, was getting to know the small group of investors who focus on shorting biotech pharma stock. He took advantage of other pharma bros bragging about which stocks they've shorted as they felt were fakes sure to lose money. Short selling is essentially betting that a stock price will go down on the stock market instead of up. In this example, the investors were betting that medicines would improve ineffective or not get FDA approval. Not getting FDA approval often has a significant impact on a small biotech pharmaceutical company and its associated stock value, which can make short sellers very profitable very quickly. Okay, let's take a moment to discuss short sellers as they are investors of a different breed. Publicly owned businesses' primary objective is to increase stockholder value. To that end, 
it is rare that companies will share more info than they are required relative to any issues that would lead to a decrease in their stock price. In other words, companies are very careful to share that which only makes it appear they will continue to be successful and have stock growth. This encourages investors to continue investing, and most investors put their money towards the companies they think will grow the most and fastest sustainably. However, short sellers play on the darker side of the market. They try to see through the pomp and circumstance to find the companies that will have the stock price decline as opposed to growth. They are betting against the house. To go short, you're playing against the entire market, betting on failure. And to do this, short sellers have to find the facts that every company is seeking to hide. They comb through 10Ks, research obscure footnotes hidden in the margins in hopes that most investors won't notice. All to find that one hint, that one clue that shows the smoke and mirrors, the real company value, the decline that could occur. And in the more nefarious portions of the short seller market, some create widespread rumors to impact the trading prices of companies to lower their stock price in their investment favor, helping or frankly creating the smoke and mirrors to affect the market. Also, short sellers are well known for taking their research that may have found criminal misreporting or actions to journalists, industry competitors, and regulatory agencies, using these entities to expose the controversy, do the dirty work for them, and cause a decrease in the stock market price for the company embroiled in the scandal, all leading to the short seller's swift personal gain. Whether these moves are altruistic or market manipulation on the part of the short seller is a very, very fine line and up for personal interpretation due to many policy loopholes. Stock market prices are supposed to reflect a company's perceived market value, but perceptions can be misleading. While working at Kramer, Berkowitz & Company, Martin recommended short-selling Regeneron Pharmaceuticals stock. They were a biotech company testing a new weight loss drug. When Regeneron's price dropped in accordance with Shkreli's prediction, the hedge fund profited. But this highly profitable prediction drew the attention of the Securities and Exchange Commission, which then investigated Martin Shkreli's knowledge about the stock. The SEC was unable to prove wrongdoing on Martin's part, but this would not be the first nor the last time the SEC would investigate Mr. Shkreli. He was now on their radar. After four years at Kramer, Berkowitz & Company, Shkreli left for greener pastures. He bounced around a few other hedge firms before starting his own, which he called Elia Capital Management, and started in 2006. In the summer of 2007, the Elia Fund tanked when Martin made a $2.6 million bet through Lehman Brothers that the overall market would decline. When the market instead increased, Martin lost his bet. He then refused to pay Lehman Brothers and chose instead to make, quote, veiled threats of filing a bankruptcy, end quote, according to the eventual lawsuit. But it was Lehman Brothers which instead went down in flames during the 2008 meltdown. Although the courts found the suit against Martin Shkreli in Lehman Brothers' favor to the tune of $2.3 million, the verdict was vacated as Lehman Brothers was no more. There was no one to pay. Martin is quoted as saying, quote, I wasn't successful with my first hedge fund. I shut it down and lived with my parents, end quote. This would only be the first of many examples of Martin Shkreli being overly bold in his approaches. Big risk only means big payoff if the risk isn't realized. 
If an investor has enough money sources to bounce through a couple of investing failures, the risk is minimized. Water off a duck's back. I'll make it up the big next trade. However, it's akin to a gambling addiction when the investor no longer has the money sources and is unwilling to admit that to themselves. The Netflix show Dirty Money is fantastic and highly suggested by me. In episode two, titled Drug Short, it features the story about Martin Shkreli and others that played in this pharmaceutical space and shares this quote, which I think sums up Martin and other short sellers like him quite well. And that quote is, often wrong, never in doubt. Never one to be deterred, Martin Shkreli started a new hedge fund in 2008 called MSMB. The name is made from Martin's initials and those of his business partner, Merrick Bissek. It's during this hedge fund where some of Martin's further tricks become known. For example, it was observed that Martin and Merrick were shorting biotech companies, then using stock chat rooms and other aggressive tactics to, quote, savage them. In other words, to spread nasty rumors to cause the stock to decrease in trading price. The perfect approach for a short seller to make quick money. In 2011, Martin Shkreli made another questionable yet profitable move that operates on the fringe of legal. Martin filed requests with the FDA to reject a new cancer diagnostic device from company NVIDIA Biopharmaceuticals and an inhalable insulin therapy from Mankin Corporation. This action caused each company's stock price to drop significantly. In the background, Martin had placed a large short sell on both of the company's stocks. Both companies, after having invested many millions in R&D and trials, had difficulty launching their products after the rejection filings. Martin and MSMB ruthlessly walked away with millions from their quick gains on the short sell price impact. And it should be noted, the FDA ultimately approved both medicines. The rejections filed by Martin were a ruse for pure profit. And at what cost to those that needed this drug approval to survive? We'll never know. In 2011, MSMB made a naked short sale on an account it held with Merrill Lynch that did not go well. Okay, bear with me as I want to segue for a moment to explain what the heck a naked short sale is before I go into the specifics around the MSMB trade. For those that already know this or don't care and are just patiently waiting for me to get to the Wu-Tang Clan album details, maybe skip ahead one to two minutes. Okay, for the rest of you that are still here, let's do this. First, it should be understood the naked short is a very risky, sort of shady, and rather discouraged practice. The simplest explanation of this approach is the investor, Martin Shkreli at MSMB in this example, is selling a number of stocks at a price he thinks the stock will land at using someone else's money, Merrill Lynch's money in this particular example. The investor, Martin, predicts all of this before actually owning or having bought any of the stocks that they are already trading at a made-up price. It's a risky bet involving many factors. You have sold a number of stocks to others that you're betting you can buy from someone else at a particular price using someone else's money that you think you can sell at a particular price for gain. And with this being a short sell, you are betting that that stock you are buying will significantly drop in price during the finite time you are making this trade. If you are wrong in any of your cause and effect prediction calculations of your ability to buy the stock from enough sellers at the price you are targeting, you have what is called a, quote, failure to deliver, and you 
are responsible for the losses of the stocks you now owe to the other stock buyers, which you will also fail to deliver. You are responsible for this loss of money, not only to the folks you couldn't sell the stock to, but also to the bank that loaned you the money and the fees associated to the trade that was an overall failure. The loss in this type of trade is massive, and because the risk is high, the reward can be very mighty in the rare occasion in which it is actually performed accurately. This type of training is not recommended for the weak of heart or the weak of wallet. And if too many people make a trade of this type against a particular company, it can impact the company's price negatively in a domino-type effect. In fact, a report from the SEC and Bloomberg provided analysis that pointed to naked short-selling as what possibly drove Lehman Brothers' price down and led to the dissolution of the company. It is clear Martin Shkreli likes finding the edge of the market and pushing them for his gain. Okay. Now that we sort of understand what a naked short sale is and why it's often bad news, here's the actual trade and the damage that occurred. Martin Shkreli's company, MSMB, sold short 32 million shares of Orexigen Therapeutics stock at about $2.50 per share the day after its price dropped a couple of dollars from $9 per stock. The drop in stock price was due to the FDA declining to approve the drug Contrave, MSMB was betting it would fall further. To Martin and MSMB's disappointment, the Orexigen stock price increased after their trade, which meant MSMB just lost an astronomical amount of money. MSMB did not have enough liquidity or cash on hand to cover the position, although it had told Merrill Lynch before this trade that it did. Merrill Lynch lost $7 million on the trade, and MSMB was wiped out from this. It put their balance sheet completely into the negative. But Martin was keeping the lack of money information to himself. He had other ideas. In 2012, Martin's hedge fund, MSMB, announced it was investing $4 million in a new biotech company called Retrofin. In a seemingly bizarre move at the time, It was also announced that Martin Shkreli would wind down MSMB after this purchase to devote all of his time to leading Retrofin as their CEO. When asked why at age 29, Martin would shift from running a hedge fund to running a pharmaceutical company, he stated, quote, "Eh, there wasn't enough money in hedge funds. Even at the biggest hedge funds, I didn't think they were doing all that well compared to company builders. The Forbes top 50 is all company builders, end quote. Good to see he wants to do some good for the world. In late 2012, Martin took Retrofin public through what is known as a reverse merger. This is when someone merges a new business into an existing publicly traded shell, thereby getting stock that you can immediately sell to investors. These types of deals are so often used as scams that the SEC has issued a bulletin warning investors to stay away from them, which by now we've learned is kind of Martin's modus operandi. But at the time, biotech stocks were so hot, and Martin was apparently so convincing, he was able to raise $9 million from investors in one year. Over the next two years, Retrofin and Martin Shkreli would go on to raise over $100 million from investors. Martin was known to be boastful on his social media sites, Twitter being his personal favorite. In early 2014, Martin Shkreli began posting messages online about Retrofin's business and how well it was doing, referring to how the company's stock had soared from $3 a share to almost $20 under his leadership. Then, with no explanation of why, in May 2014, Martin tweeted, quote, 
this is one of the best days of my life, end quote. The news the next day confirmed Martin had sold almost 4.5 million worth of his own stock in Retrofin. This infuriated investors who believed he was cashing out his short-term boosted CEO gains as opposed to thinking of the longevity and profitability of the company for the investors. It was not a surprise when Shkreli was ousted as CEO from Retrofin in late 2014. No bother to Martin Shkreli. Friends recall he had set up his offices for his new company by that weekend. He launched Turing with three drugs in development acquired from Retrofin an intranasal version of ketamine for depression, an intranasal version of oxytocin, and Vecamil for hypertension. Martin named this new company Turing, as in Alan Turing, the mathematician known for cracking the Nazi Enigma machine codes. In a perfect example of Martin's controversial approach to life and lack of care for social norms, he's quoted in a Vanity Fair article as saying, quote, I bought an Enigma machine. I'm conflicted because... It's a Nazi relic. It's like owning a gas chamber. But it's a constant reminder that we should use knowledge for good, even if the process is ugly. From the Pythagorean theorem to Fermat's theorem, the math is ugly. But if you hold your nose during the process of proving it, you get to the right place. And while that is a hard quote to follow, the podcast must go on. Martin had a clear business strategy for Turing obtain licenses on niche, out-of-patent medicines that had little to no currently FDA-approved competition, especially those without cheap generics available, then increase the pricing of each rare drug and profit. This approach eliminates the cost of developing, validating, and bringing drugs to market for the acquiring company. That expenditure can be taken care of by others. Martin was here for pure profit. This approach led to low operating costs and high net income immediately. In August of 2014, Martin's new company, Turing, announced their $55 million acquisition of Daraprim, a drug approved by the FDA in 1953 from Impax Labs. The drug's patents had ran out, but there were no generics or competitors available. The deal included the condition that Impax immediately removed the drug from regular wholesalers and pharmacies to close all distribution channels, making Turing the exclusive provider of the drug. So they reap all the profits when they later boost the price. At the time, it was one of the largest financial moves in biotech history. However, Martin's financial shell game was about to be brought to a swift halt. In August of 2015, Martin's former biotech pharmaceutical company, Retrofin, filed a lawsuit against him. Retrofin alleged Martin Shkreli stole both cash and shares worth millions of dollars from Retrofin. The company claimed he disguised the fraud as consulting arrangements. He would give shares to a small group of insiders, then pay off creditors and his former MSNB investors, who he still owned money to and were threatening to go to the SEC, and he'd use whatever was left to settle other lawsuits. The Retrofin lawsuit essentially alleges that Martin set up the Retrofin company to create an asset that he might be able to use to placate his MSMB capital investors. It turns out that Martin had lost more than $7 million on a poorly placed large short bid against Orexigen Therapeutics, as we had mentioned earlier in the podcast. He later lied to Merrill Lynch about being able to settle that position. When this lie was discovered, Merrill Lynch closed out the position at a large loss. Instead of doing the honorable thing and admitting that he had lost all of their money, instead, on September 10th, 2012, Martin had sent an email claiming that he had, quote, just about doubled their money, end quote, 
to his investors. He even told one investor that MSNB had $35 million in its balance sheet when actually it only had $700. No additional zeros. In this optimistic fraud of a letter, Martin offered his MSNB company's investors a choice of cash or shares in Retrofin. It appeared that Retrofin was essentially a shell game created to launder a pyramid scheme of investment fund losses through. While Martin fought off the Retrofin lawsuits from 2012, he was devising his get-rich-quick scheme at his third new company, Turing Pharmaceuticals, in 2015. To achieve this, he chose to increase the price of Daraprim, a drug Retrofin owned that is on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. This medicine treats toxoplasmosis a parasitic infection that is dangerous to pregnant women and people with compromised immune systems, such as HIV patients and the elderly. Martin Shkreli changed the price of Daraprim from $13.50 per pill to $750 per pill. That's a 5,000% price increase and a cost of $400 a month to $22,000 a month for only one of many life-saving medicines needed by people suffering this condition. Martin defended the price hike by saying, and I quote, If there was a company that was selling an Aston Martin at the price of a bicycle, and we buy that company, and we ask to charge Toyota prices, I don't think that that should be a crime. End quote. An obvious solution to balance this ridiculous price hike is for another company to competitively undercut Turing's price. But due to the complex rules governing drug sales in the United States, this is a lengthy and arduous process for medical safety reasons. A pharmaceutical competitor would have to go through the FDA approval process to show its drug is equivalent to Daraprim. However, this was effectively impossible at the time, as Shkreli's current company, Turing Pharmaceuticals, controlled its drug distribution 100%, making it hard to get the adequate samples to do the required comparative drug testing. It's hard to prove your drug works the same if you can't get the needed number of samples to compare it to. These FDA restrictions meant to protect consumers are unfortunately used by some companies as a competitive approach to hike prices of drugs as a highly profitable business strategy. Valiant Pharmaceuticals was notorious for this. Both Martin Shkreli and Valiant Pharmaceuticals are covered in the Dirty Money episode I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Despite many companies taking advantage of this competitive loophole, 2015 was... A campaign season, and this dramatic boost in the Daraprim drug price caught the precious short attention of Americans and their politicians. So Martin Shkreli immediately became U.S. public enemy number one, the villain of the media moment that all politicians running had a comment about. Bernie Sanders, running on the Democratic ticket, was quoted as saying, quote, The drastic price increase will have a direct impact on patients' ability to purchase their needed medications, end quote. Martin Shkreli and his typical immature and in-your-face nature, in turn, sent Bernie Sanders a $2,700 campaign donation. Bernie then gave the money to a health care clinic, which might have been the only positive thing Martin Shkreli ever accidentally did for the health industry. Hillary Clinton, also running on the Democratic ticket, tweeted that quote, price gouging like this is outrageous, end quote, and promised to fix the problem if elected president. As a side note, and in reflection of what it means when someone as popular tweets something like this, 
This tweet consequently swiftly led to billions of dollars of loss in the stock market capitalization of pharmaceutical stocks due to the fear Clinton's comments stoked in the industry. The industry regularly leverages a similar approach, although often less bold, akin to what Martin Shkreli was doing. And the ultimate winner of the U.S. presidential election, President Donald Trump, was quoted as saying, Martin Shkreli looks like a spoiled brat, end quote. Sick burn. When asked how he felt about the criticism, Martin Shkreli said, the attempt to public shame is interesting because everything we've done is legal. Rockefeller made no attempt to apologize as long as what he was doing was legal, end quote. Martin Shkreli was later quoted as saying he wished he had raised the price even higher as, quote, my investors expect me to maximize profits. Daraprim is 0.01% of healthcare costs in the U.S., end quote. During a Vanity Fair interview from which this quote originated, it was stated that Martin Shkreli then pulled up a chart of the price of admission to Disney World, showing how it had increased from $3.50 in 1971 to $105 today. He thinks life-saving drugs are a comparison to Disneyland. Right. This was to exemplify his point that his pricing increase approach is not unique to him nor his industry. And he further contested by making the profit on this small area of the market, he could then reinvest the large earnings to discover, research, and test new life-saving drugs. This would boost R&D faster to make real progress. Martin Shkreli claimed that Turing would spend 60 to 70% of its revenues on research versus the 15% typically spent by big pharma companies. Sounds great. However, it should be noted that Martin Shkreli never successfully delivered any new medications from any of his companies ever. On December 17th of 2015, Martin Shkreli was arrested by the FBI after being charged with a federal indictment on securities fraud. The charges accused Martin of making false statements to MSMB investors to raise more money after MSMB had suffered huge losses. Martin was also accused of misappropriating $11 million in retrofin assets to pay back the MSMB investors. Martin Shkreli was also subpoenaed to appear before the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform of the U.S. House of Representatives to answer questions about Daraprim price increasing. When he would ultimately testify, he would appear aloof, smiling, laughing, and frankly smug. He stated his Fifth Amendment rights to not incriminate himself as a response to every question to the extreme frustration of the House committee. Directly after the congressional testimony, Martin Shkreli posted to Twitter, quote, hard to accept that these imbeciles represent people in our government, end quote. This smug behavior from the young pharmaceutical exec combined with the media attention around the suffering patients paying hundreds of thousands of dollars more per year for their life-preserving drugs due to his actions led to Martin being labeled as the pharma bro and as the most hated man in America in the media. It was also around this time that Martin Shkreli would anger a lot of Wu-Tang Clan fans. Martin won the never-heard, never-released Wu-Tang Clan album titled Once Upon a Time in Shaolin after the single existing copy of the album was sold through Paddle 8 Auction House on November 24, 2015. Martin purchased the album for $2 million U.S. million. That annoyed Wu-Tang Clan fans, but what Martin did next enraged them. 
On October 2016, Martin claimed on his Twitter account that he would release the entire album for free download if Donald Trump won the 2016 U.S. presidential election. He also stated he would destroy the album if Hillary Clinton won. Martin Shkreli did the album intro and one track the day after Trump became the president-elect. To date, these are the only songs that anyone has ever heard from the album. While waiting for his criminal prosecution, civil penalties were rolling in for Martin. In December of 2016, the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance issued a tax warrant for $1.26 million for unpaid taxes owed by Martin Shkreli. After Martin made partial payments, the state recouped another $134,500 by seizing and auctioning off an Enigma machine for $65,000, a manuscript signed by Isaac Newton, and a letter from Charles Darwin. The Securities and Exchange Commission announced that Martin Shkreli had agreed to an order that would bar him from the securities industry. This agreement was to settle a pending SEC administrative action against him. Martin Shkreli is eligible to apply for readmission to the industry subject to applicable laws and regulations governing the process, but I have a feeling his application might get lost. Due to his notoriety and overwhelming negative public opinion, it was difficult to select an unbiased jury with potential jurors saying, quote, I'm aware of the defendant and I hate him. Also, quote, he kind of looks like a dick. And another quote, he disrespected the Wu-Tang Clan. At his 2017 trial, Shkreli argued that none of his investors actually lost money. Some actually turned a profit and thus his actions did not constitute a crime. Martin Shkreli's frequently criticized the federal prosecutors on his Facebook streaming video feed and in the hallways of the courthouse. In response, those prosecutors requested the judge issue a gag order to prevent what they called a, quote, campaign of disruption, end quote. The judge ordered Martin Shkreli not to speak with reporters at all during the trial. On August 4th, 2017, the trial jury found Shkreli guilty on two counts of securities fraud and one count of conspiracy to commit securities fraud, and not guilty on the other five counts. Later, he would receive a seven-year sentence and would be instructed to hand back more than $7.3 million in assets. Martin Shkreli said he was delighted with the outcome and described his prosecution as, quote, a witch hunt of epic proportions, end quote. In September of 2017, Martin Shkreli's bail was revoked following a Facebook post offering $5,000 for a strand of Hillary Clinton's hair. The judge perceived this solicitation as an assault, which is not protected under the First Amendment. The reason this was perceived as a threat is thanks to Martin's earlier Facebook posts prior to the hair request, suggesting that uh, Martin Shkreli might have plans to clone Hillary Clinton just when you thought things couldn't get weirder. Martin said everyone should chill. His post was satire. His lawyer in the understatement of the year described the post as tasteless, but not a threat. And in what seems to indicate Martin Shkreli thinks people don't know how the internet and social media works, he much later edited the post to add a disclaimer that it was satire and said the disclaimer had been there all along. When that didn't work, Martin Shkreli later apologized for the post. Okay, back to the Wu-Tang Clan part of the podcast. You might be wondering why this album has never been publicly heard or released and how it came to go up on auction. 
The Wu-Tang Clan began working on Once Upon a Time in Shaolin in the late 2000s. They worked on the album for six years. It was mostly recorded in Morocco. It also surprisingly features Cher, twice. Once Upon a Time in Shaolin was made when streaming music piracy was on the rise. The band wanted to make a statement against this, so they treated the album a bit like an art project in an attempt to exemplify the value of the album. Yeah, it was kind of as cheesy as it sounds. A quote from Wu-Tang Clan's website at the time of the album creation states, quote, The music industry is in crisis. The intrinsic value of music has been reduced to zero. Contemporary art is worth millions by virtue of its exclusivity. By adopting a 400-year-old Renaissance-style approach to music, offering it as a commissioned commodity, and allowing it to take a similar trajectory from creation to exhibition to sale, we hope to inspire and intensify urgent debates about the future of music, end quote. To that end, the album was held in a silver jewel-encrusted box. The box was sealed with a wax Wu-Tang Clan seal, and it contained leather-bound liner notes. In March 2015, Wu-Tang Clan exhibited the album for the only time to a crowd of about 150 art collectors, dealers, and critics in Queens, New York for about 13 minutes. The album was then put on sale on the auction site Paddle 8, which has sold many other high-value art pieces. So where is the album now? In September of 2017, Martin Shkreli attempted to sell Once Upon a Time in Shaolin on auction site eBay. The winning bid surpassed $1 million. Unfortunately for him, Martin Shkreli was incarcerated on unrelated fraud counts before the sale could be completed. In March 2018, a federal court seized assets belonging to Martin worth $7.36 million, including Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. So, the U.S. government owns the piece of musical art, and it is not known if it will ever reach the public. Martin Shkreli made a request for compassionate release on April 22, 2020. In his request, he said he should be allowed to live at his new fiancé's apartment. Martin Shkreli claimed his company needed him to develop a remedy for the COVID-19 virus. The judge declined the request, stating this was yet another instance of, quote, delusional self-aggrandizing behavior, end quote. So what is to be done about short sellers and pharmaceutical companies and probably plenty of other industries manipulating the market for their short-term capital gains at the long-term cost of all of us? While this story often focuses on the particular drug increasing in price and the impact to the direct population that takes that drug, have no mistake, the extreme artificial boost in these drug costs impacts us all. Medical insurance is a shared risk, a shared cost approach at paying for health costs in which we participate in the employment sector in the United States. When healthcare companies year after year raise drug or device prices, which have no alternatives and therefore no competition, this impacts all of our insurance costs and premiums, and many of us pay these premiums through a pooled insurance work scheme. The more people in your company whose costs rise, overall, all our costs rise. This also can make some workers fear for their job. If their coworkers or management find out, perhaps they'll fire them to save money for the overall company and employees because their prescription is the expensive one. These company and market manipulations across healthcare have been a big driver for the increasing medical costs around the world, but most noticeably, significantly in the United States market. 
One obvious solution to this industry challenge is price controls. This is practiced in a number of other countries to a varying degree of success. However, this is also one of the United States pharmaceutical industry's greatest fears, to be avoided at all costs given the impact to their bottom lines. To this end, Big Pharma funds one of the biggest, in size of monetary spending, lobbyist groups in Washington, D.C. to protect against any cost regulation policies. The blatant lack of morality, the willingness to put lives and financial stability for common people at risk, for corporate and personal gain throughout this story, is nauseating. How we fix that problem is an age-old question for which... I'm not sure when we'll have an adequate answer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Controversial Figures. Just a reminder, please like, subscribe, and leave a rating and comment for Controversial Figures in your favorite podcast app. We have a Twitter page now at Figures Podcast, so please follow us. Give recommendations of Controversial Figures you'd like to hear from. This podcast is an independent podcast created by Tammy Hawkins. This is funded by those that donate, so please join Patreon and give what you can. Once I hit 50 Patreon subscribers, I'll send out swag to all donators. And I'll give shout-outs during the show to anyone that's donated along the way. Research references are available in the show notes, as are musical references. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. Be well. Be well.